Amen. Let's dive into God's word now. Would you turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33? Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. If I were to ask you um, as we are turning, do you have a need in your life today? What will be the answer to that question? Obviously, many of us would say, well, well, I think I got everything I need. But if I were to ask it another way and say, if you had the opportunity to get anything, what would be your answer? Would you say, yeah, man, actually, I do, I, I do have a couple of things in mind that I would like to get. If, 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 there's, if, the offer is that, that, if the offer is that open where it says, hey, you know, we will supply whatever it is that you feel like you have a need for. What would be the answer to that question? What would be the need that you, that you highlighted, that you brought to the table and say, yes, I have need of this? That's what I want to dive into this morning. I want to dive into the ideal and the concept of need. And I want to see what we learn from Israel as we talk about need. Exodus chapter 33 is about God offering a proposition of sorts to Israel. He offers them a proposition to meet need. And it's very interesting. In fact, it's, in fact, it's mind-blowing to me how this passage plays out as it relates to God offering the opportunity for Israel to have needs met and how Israel responds to God's offer. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, God's proposition to Israel about their needs and then Israel's response to God's proposition and then God's final response back to Israel. Looking at verse 1 of chapter 33, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, and the, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Again, this is a mind-blowing passage to me because God says, I'm going to place you exactly where I promised I would. Make no mistake about it, though. It's not because you've done what I've asked you to do. Y'all are a hard-headed bunch disobedient, stiff-necked. Many of you by now know that my family, about a year and a half ago, had the privilege of adopting a beautiful black rescue dog. Gorgeous as they come, energetic as they come, but she is also stubborn as they come. Now, she's not stubborn, she's not dumb stubborn. She's smart stubborn. She knows, in other words, in other words, her stubbornness immediately, you know, just goes away when snacks are at play. If I have a snack to give her, she'll do exactly what I tell her. She'll go wherever, she, wherever I ask her to go. She'll do exactly what I ask her to do. But if there are no snacks involved, there will always be a great deal of wrestling that will accompany my commands. And nowhere is that more on display than when we walk her. In fact, we have a special chain 
collar for, for our dog because she is so dead set on always going her own way no matter how much you command her to go in another direction. This beautiful dog will move towards danger. She will veer off in the street. She will chase children. She will chase other animals. It really doesn't matter. She's just not going to go where you want her to go. And when we don't have this special collar on her, she will not bend. doesn't matter how much obedience training we've done. If there are no treats involved, she is not bending when we, when we have just or any old collar on her. Asia, that's her, that's her name. Because we were hoping we were going to get a male dog and we were going to name it Ace. We ended up with a female dog, so we just put like a female type of thing at the end of it. But Asia would rather die of strangulation from collar pool than go the way you desire for her to go. And she's a big dog if you've seen her. She's a strong dog, part pit bull terrier, part bull, uh, bloodhound. But she won't bend the neck. She is stiff-necked. Israel is stiff-necked. You and I, as we discussed last week, are often like Israel in the sense that we are also stiff-necked. We refuse to go any other way but our own. No matter what destruction lies ahead of us, no matter what destruction awaits around the corner for us. And what we find here in Exodus 33 is that God is saying, I've had enough of this. So I'm going to let you go to the land that I promised your forefathers I would give you. And I promised that I would give it not only to you, but it would be an inheritance to your offspring. But I will not be going to that land with you. Because if I go with you, I'm probably going to destroy you. A few things jump out to me as I think about those first three verses in this text. Israel's, Israel's idolatry moves God towards handing them over. Like we observed last week, God has practically handed Israel over to Moses. Listen to how he is describing them. The people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. The emphasis seems to be intentional. Remember, for example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that we heard God said, God say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God said, I brought you out. Now he's saying, these people you brought out, Moses. And these words come after Israel has committed gross idolatry and turned themselves over to the worship of a phony God. And like we said last week, in these words, we can hear the, exacerba uh, the exasperated parent look over to the other parent and say, get your kids. Translation, these kids are so off the chain right now, I don't even want to claim them. And we hear a similar tone as Israel has traded in the immortal God for a dead God made out of dead, inanimate things. Traded in the immortal God for a golden cow that they've made with their own hands, which leads to another observation. 
from these first three verses. Israel's idolatry moves God towards separation. Remember, God initially, after he saw Israel's rank idol, idol worship in chapter 32, remember that he was going to destroy them, but Moses pleaded for lenience. And so instead of complete and total eradication, we get in chapter 32 that, that, that the people instead are, Moses instructs the people that are on the Lord's side to slay those who are no longer. It says 3,000 people are slain that day, people of their own kin, brothers and sisters whom they know. And then God, after that, delivers a plague to the people. And so they're met with judgment on top of judgment for their idolatry. And here we see that there are clear consequences for the sin of idolatry. So we get a slaughter of 3,000 people at the hands of their own countrymen. We get some sort of plague that is delivered upon the people. In other words, the penalty for this idolatry signifies just how significant the crime of idolatry actually is. But get this. It could have been even worse than that. Which is why we find ourselves... In Exodus chapter 33, verse 3, reviewing the ways in which it could have got worse than it already was. God is saying, hey, listen, if y'all keep this up and I go with you, I'm erasing you. I'm eradicating the whole nation. So go, go, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you. For you are a stiff-necked people. God is saying this was such an egregious infraction, this idolatry that you committed, that I don't need to accompany you to the promised land because y'all might do something crazy and then I will have to wipe y'all completely out. For your own good, I'm not going to go with you because you are so wayward, so stubborn, so inconsistent that your sin may lead to me consuming you. Have you ever been in a situation where the people that you're connected to, like your spouse or your children or your family members or your friends, did something so egregious, so foolish, so flat out wild that you're like, I got to get out of here. Because because if I stick around, y'all are going to say or do one more crazy thing and I'm going to hurt somebody. So I just got to leave. Y'all have made me that upset. Y'all have, y'all have made me that angry that I literally have to leave the house. Some of y'all are in here saying to yourselves, yeah, that was yesterday, right? <laughs> that happened just yesterday. Well, well, in some small way, this is God right now, literally ruling himself out of this trip now. But this actually leads me to another very interesting point that we find in the very first three verses of this text, and that is this. Israel's idolatry cannot nullify God's faithfulness. Israel's idolatry cannot nullify God's faithfulness. This is why this passage is so unbelievable to me. Israel has committed grave sin, the gravest of sin. They've attributed the work of God, namely their deliverance from captivity to Pharaoh, 
to an inanimate statue of a cow. And at a time where they were supposed to be gladly welcoming Moses back from the top of the mountain with all of the instruction on how to worship this one true God, they were engaged in this wild party at the bottom of the mountain in celebration of this new idol that they created out of the gold that they received from God's deliverance of them out of Egypt. And yet, despite all of that, they cannot erase God's faithfulness to them. No, God's faithfulness, even in the moments of his disappointment and in his anger, he is committed to holding up his end of the covenant even when we refuse to hold up our end. He says to Israel that depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out all of these nations. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. God says, listen, Moses, I will not go with y'all because I will probably destroy you and your people because you are so rebellious. But I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the promised land that I promised your forefathers. I'm going to send an angel to prepare the way and remove the enemies that are impeding your progress to this promised land. And I'm going to let you enter into this promised land. Think about how amazing that is. That as stubborn as Israel is, God's faithfulness is that much more sure. We see this not only in Israel, but we see it ultimately in Jesus Christ for us. We hear it in the words of Jesus on the cross as he says to his father while being unjustly sacrificed. By sinful men and women, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. Christ was faithful to us, making eternal provision for people like you and people like me, people that were responsible for his crucifixion. He was faithful in making provision and offering us eternal life in place of our disobedience. In place of our idolatry, making gods out of lesser things, he was making provision to all those who would trust him, trust him with their lives. We have an opportunity to come into a saving relationship with Christ only due, only due to his sheer grace and his sheer mercy, only due to his faithfulness when we remained faithless. So Israel's idolatry leads to a, a decision from God to separate, but his faithfulness won't allow him to separate without blessing them, meaning that he's going to give them everything they could possibly want, listen, but himself. Promised land, check. You can have it. Enemies defeated, check. It's yours. All the provision you need, check. Take it. Land flowing with milk and with honey. Here's what's really uncomfortable about what God is offering in this text. What's really uncomfortable about what he is offering is that many of us, had we the opportunity to take it, 
would take it and it would be enough for us. Blessing without the blesser. Comfort without the comforter. So many of us would be completely and totally satisfied with this arrangement. Deliver me out of wilderness, clear my path of my enemies, meet my material needs. What more could a person want, right? It's exactly what I've always wanted. Yes, God, we'll take it. Oh, we don't get you? As a sacrifice, we'll just have to take, man, because we get everything else, right? Can I shoot straight with you? If I'm not careful in my own life, in my own walk with God, I could fall prey to this same trap. I could think that those are the things that really I need, that those are my greatest needs. Life without despair, life without enemies, life without material want. Many of us have fallen into this trap to the point where maybe we are Christian by profession and declaration, but inwardly we have grown so cold to God and so dependent on everything else in this life that if he promised to give us everything else but himself, we would go on with our lives and barely notice his absence. If he promised to give you, for example, that dream job and complete financial stability, if he promised to give you victory in the culture wars, if he promised to give you cultural power, getting rid of your political or cultural enemies, if he promised to give you the dream house or the dream car or the dream spouse, if he promised to give you all of this without giving you himself, Many of us will be totally fine with that. And it is to that spot in your heart that the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning. It is, to, it is exactly at that spot in your heart that the Spirit of God is speaking to this morning. This morning is as good of a morning as any for the Lord to search our hearts and to reorder our desires in order that our need starts with him. Take note of Israel's response in verse 5. He, uh, it says, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What is Israel's response to this news that God gives them about blessing them without him? What is their response? Their response is repentance. How do we know? Because in accordance to God's instruction... They stripped themselves of their ornaments, their accessories, their jewelry, their swag, the things that accentuate their appearance and draw attention to themselves. This was an act first of humbling. They were humbling themselves in the presence of this God who declared that I was no, I'm no longer going with you. Go by yourself. 
In this moment of repentance and return back to God, their image was no longer important. Their appearance was no longer important. God was. One theologian says of this moment that the removal of their ornaments was for the purpose of evidencing the genuineness of their contrition. Outward adornment was out of keeping with the taking of a low place before God, he continues. And then he says, ending, the more true spirituality declines, the more an elaborate ritual comes to the forefront. In other words, the more God or or the less God becomes, the more prominent we become in our worship. In a selfie generation where we photograph ourselves into oblivion, And we seem to always be concerned about how we look and how we're going to be perceived. When is the last time that you saw the Christian church move towards the kind of repentance and lamenting that shouts, I don't care about how I look. I care about his presence being with me. Doesn't matter how good I look or even how good we look. If you are not here with us, is what Israel is saying. I mean, as I think about city life, what a tragedy it would be for our own church if we completed this beautiful space and we leave it empty of God's presence because of our content to have or for us because we are so content with having everything else but him. What a a tragedy it would be for our own lives to be decorated and adorned with beautiful clothes and beautiful accessories and yet be absent of God's presence because our hearts were content to live life without it. But Israel in this moment understands this truth. And it is this, what they needed most in this moment and ultimately in their lives couldn't be found in gold, and it couldn't be found in silver, and it couldn't be found in other precious metals. What they needed in this moment couldn't be found in even their own sense of worth and self-value. What they truly needed most could only be found in the one true God. And so they were humbling themselves in light of that truth. However, this wasn't The only thing that this act of stripping themselves of ornaments was displaying. This was also an act of renouncement, an act of humbling, but also an act of renouncement. Remember, remember what Israel was actually guilty of. Idol worship, yes. But what kind of idol worship in particular? Taking the precious metals that God had blessed them with in their deliverance from Pharaoh's captivity and making an idol out of those metals. Now what are they doing in response to God's words that he will leave them and let them go on their own? They're laying down those precious metals. You see, oftentimes repentance from idolatry requires divorcing ourselves from the very things that cause our idolatry in the first place. 
How oftentimes do we repent with one hand still grasping tightly the very thing that caused our downfall? How oftentimes do we repent from substance abuse while still frequenting all the circles that led to that abuse? Or how often do we repent of jealousy and coveting of others' lives while still lingering hours on social media watching others' lives? How often do we repent of selfishness and self-seeking while never inconveniencing ourselves or our wallets or our schedule and never putting ourselves in situations to be inconvenienced in those ways? How often do we repent from relationships that have gone in the wrong direction while still placing ourselves in the same compromising situations that got us on the wrong track? Oftentimes, our repentance will require a distancing from the scenes and from the people and from the substances and the things that are moving us in the direction of the idolatry that we're trying to flee. And so the same gold that they used to erect this golden calf, they have put it down. They have put it down. But there are other times where our repentance will require us to repurpose the things that have moved us into that idolatry. No longer using those things for ourselves, but instead dedicating them to God for his purposes and use. So we see that not only do they put these ornaments down, but we see that later on they're using what? Precious metal. The precious metal they receive from God to do what? Erect his tabernacle. They're repurposing the things that they once used for idolatry for God. One theologian speaks about this text and he says that we can trace the people's spiritual progress simply by looking at what they did with their gold. Earlier they took off their earrings to make a golden calf, using their wealth to turn away from God. This time they were taking off the rest of their jewelry as a sign that they wanted to worship God alone. They were putting off idolatry. Later they would use the same gold to build a tabernacle. And he closes and says, rather than using their wealth to make idols, they were learning to give it up for God and use it. For his glory. And then he offers this last question. Listen, he says, what we do with our money, or this last statement rather, what we do with our money and our other possessions is one of the best indicators of our true spiritual condition. Are we spending most of it on ourselves or are we growing in the grace of generosity? Are we subtly becoming more and more selfish with what we have, or are we making deeper and deeper sacrifices for the kingdom of God? Are we only giving what's left, or are we giving more than we think we can spare so that God can do his saving work? Israel determines that they would rather not go with just God's blessings, saints of God. They determine and they realize that they must have God when they go. Are you following that? And so Moses goes to the Lord and Moses petitions God. But before we hear the petition, the book takes a turn and kind of breaks off from the moment to describe the scene of Moses' petition. The tent of meeting that that we find in 
verses 7 through 11, says Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And when all the people saw, I'm sorry, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is what they saw. This is what they witnessed with their own eye. This is what they knew they could not live and be without. It didn't matter how much gold they had in their coffers. It didn't matter where they were located, right? It didn't didn't matter if they were located in the wilderness or or, or if they were located in a land filled with flowing with milk and honey. They knew that they needed to be with this God. This God communed with them and spoke to their leader as one who speaks with a friend. This God dwelled amongst them in a form of a cloud settling down in this tent on the outside of the camp. They knew that they could not go anywhere without this God, no matter what this God offered them in forms of substance. And so Moses makes the plea to this God. It's what we find in verse 12. He says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, listen, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses saying back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. First, hear in Moses' voice, desperation. Desperation. Moses says to God, if you're not going, I don't want to go. Now, keep in mind where Moses is saying that from. They are not in a comfortable place. They are not in pleasant territory. This is not a place of ease. This is not a place of plenty. They are dependent on God every single day for provision. There is no true, rich, overwhelming abundance and and wealth and prosperity in this place that that, that Moses is settling. And yet Moses says, if you're not going, we can stay right here. I would rather be somewhere stuck in an uncomfortable situation than be in a comfortable situation without you. 
That is the desperation that Moses is petitioning God with. That is the realization that no matter how, how good life appears to be, saints, if God is not in it, then it is not nearly as good as it could be. But not only do we hear desperation in Moses' voice, we hear Moses' reasoning being one of distinction. He says, listen, verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, I and your people, from every other place on the face of the earth? Now, understand what God has already offered them. He's offered to conquer all of their enemies. He's offered to provide them with reward in plenty. He's, 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 offered, he's offered comfort. He's offered blessing. He's offered security. And Moses says, that doesn't distinguish us. Moses is saying conquering other nations is not what's going to separate us from them. Living in plenty is not what's going to separate us from the rest of them. Having a comfortable life is not what's going to separate us from the rest of them. Moses says none of that is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Saints of God, this is what... This is the mistake, rather, that we make over and over and over again in our own lives. Is that we tell ourselves that if my enemies are conquered, then I'll be all right. I'm, in, I'm, I'm separate. I'm distinguished if my enemies are conquered. Or if I have all my finance, finances in place, then I'm going to be all right and I'm separate and I'm distinctive in that way. Or if I have a comfortable life a secure life, then I'm going to be all right and I'm separate and I'm distinctive in that way. In other words, if God just blesses me with all of these things, then I will be separate and I will be distinctive in that way. But can I share a secret with you? Brothers and sisters, many, many of people have that and they are not okay. Many of people have that and they are not distinctive. Some of you in this room may know what it feels like to have that and still not be fine. Because that is not your deepest need. Your deepest need is not having any of those things. Your deepest need is having him. And so Moses pleads with God not to leave them. In fact, he tells God in so many words, I would rather have none of those things and have you instead than have all of those things and not have you. And that must be the plea of our hearts, saints of God. That, God, I don't care what else I have as long as I have you. And, Lord, if I don't have you, then nothing else matters in terms of what I have. And to this plea, the Lord answers Moses. Verse 17, he says, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses pleads with God, petitions God, God, go with us because without you we have nothing. The people petition God with their repentance and they lay down their ornaments in, order, in a declaration saying, God, go with us because without you we have nothing. And God answers. 
and God answers. And as we'll discuss on next week, not only does he answer in terms of going with them, but he answers by showing them his glory. Sometimes we read passages like this and we say, man, this is so beautiful. I want God to go with me like this. And can I assure you of something this morning, brothers and sisters, that you have something better than this, than, than this, than this relationship. God has promised to go with you. That Jesus Christ, when he entered into the world, the Bible talks about the, the prophecy that speaks of him. It says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has promised to go with you. Jesus Christ, upon his departure from this world, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, said to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, at his arrival, he promised to be with us. At his departure, he promised to be with us. John chapter 14, as Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, he tells them that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to, you, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, by his spirit, he has promised to be with you. And he has promised to be with you even on your worst day. Because, because his promise and his assurance to be with you is resting in his own righteousness and his own acting and his own works and not ours. And so when you fall off the wagon, so to speak, and you have a rough day, God's assurance is that he will be with you because Christ, because what, of what Christ has done for you. And so your, the offer is there for you to go to God. He has promised to be with you. His promises are there um, that, that his presence isn't going anywhere from you. And so the act now is for us to go to him, to seek his face in prayer, to bathe in his word and to spend time in fellowship. To not run from, his, run from his gatherings on Sundays, but, but to run to those opportunities to gather with the people of God in the presence of God. Why? Because our greatest need is not our jobs. Our greatest need is not our house. Our greatest need is not the finances that we've been provided through these jobs. Our greatest need is that God be with us. And so he has. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And saints of God, or, or those of you who do not know Christ, your greatest need has yet to be met. I don't care what kind of life you're living. I don't care if you feel like, hey, man, I got everything that I could possibly want, or I got nothing that I, that I want. Your greatest need is neither of those things. Your greatest need is for God to be with you. And so God has prepared a way in order to be with you, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ came and gave of his life 
perfect, without spot or wrinkle, and yet suffered on a cross on your behalf in order that through his death you would have fellowship with him. Through his sacrifice, his presence would ever dwell with you, not just in this life, but in the life to come. He offers you that today. He offers you that today. All you have to do is trust him with your life. Turn from your way of doing things. Turn to him. Embrace him as Lord and Savior. And you will have God with you. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. and we.